Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Can we just worship the Lord and thank the band at the same time? Thanks for that. You know, on that last song, I was just moved uh, by everything that was engaged. They, the lights, the, everything that we use, the screens, uh, it's all to engage the senses and create awe. To engage the senses and create awe. So hundreds of years ago, you would have walked into a giant cathedral and the stained glass would have engaged your senses and created all. And our team worked so hard to do that. I was blessed. They told me they were going to put up a few decorations this week. And then next week is when everything will be fully decorated. So if you call this a few decorations, uh, I look forward to being back next week. I plan to be here next week. Um, Hopefully you'll plan to be here as well. And we'll have a great time together. If you take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and starting in verse 18, I want to tell you a little bit of, actually make a confession, something I learned about myself that I'm finally willing to confess to you. I've never confessed this publicly until the 9 a.m. service this morning, Uh, but I learned this week that if I've got some free time, and I had a little bit of free time this week, just to flip through the channels and watch TV that I really don't like to set and watch one football game, at least from start to finish. Now, a little caveat, I do enjoy watching the WVU play football, and I enjoy watching the Steelers whenever they finally show up to play football again. Um, I enjoy watching a game here or there, but if I've got some free time, I would rather just sit, now this is a confession, I would rather just sit and watch the History Channel for hours. I don't know what category that puts me into, but I really enjoy watching the History Channel. And and this week I was watching a show about the unsung heroes of the United States. People whose names we seldom hear about, but people that if they hadn't done what they did, we wouldn't be where we are. And it set up this message perfectly as I was preparing to speak on Joseph and retell the story of Joseph. Because you see, Joseph in many ways is an unsung hero of the Christmas story. Those of you that have grown up going to church, maybe you've seen Christmas pageants or Christmas plays, you know, where the kids come out. And by the way, the kids this morning, you just can't, you can't top that. Uh, but the kids come out and they're, they're wearing their bathrobes. You know, Joseph is wearing the same bathrobe that Moses wore, you know, several weeks prior. And, and, and they have the, the sheep and they have the cows. And most of the Christmas plays that I've been to, usually the cattle or the sheep have more of a speaking part than Joseph right? Joseph's kind of like one of those characters. He's just a prop in many of our minds. But this morning, what I want to do is show you that he's more than just a prop. But actually, Joseph plays a very key role in the Christmas story. And so I'll start by asking you a few questions just to help you prepare. What do you know about Joseph and his role in the Christmas story? What was Joseph's personality like? Where did Joseph live? Where did Joseph work? How many children did Joseph end up having? Why do we consider Joseph to be such a good person? And what can we learn from Joseph today? These are some of the things we're going to consider as we open God's Word together. Will you stand with me out of respect for the Bible? And I'll read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And the words will also be on the screen if that's helpful. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. 
His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the next few minutes, I'm going to give you nine characteristics of Joseph, but the message moves quickly. So I would encourage you, if you like to follow along, you can follow along on the app, or you can also follow along on the back of your bulletin, the outline there, if that helps you, along with all the references to look up later this week. Number one, Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, was a moral man. Joseph was a moral man. We see this in verse 18 when it says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, for the Jews at this time, there were few things in life that were celebrated more than weddings. If you've ever seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I've referenced that several times to try to understand culture. Uh, really, the Jews would have celebrated weddings several times more uh, than even we see in that movie. This was a really, really big deal. Now, during the days of Mary and Joseph, marriage was a different process than we experience today. In our culture, marriage is really a two-step process. You get engaged, and then you get married. You have the ceremony. But in Joseph and Mary's day, marriage was more like a four-step process. And so it's helpful sometimes for us to understand this, knowing what are they talking about in the Bible when it talks about betrothal and, and uh, legal binding documents. Well, the four-step process went like this. If you're going to get married in Mary and Joseph's day, typically the parents of the boy would choose a girl. Not his choosing, they would choose a girl to be their son's bride. Often this took place when the children were very young. Then when the children started getting close to age, they would sign a legally binding contract. That contract uh, was irrevocable except through divorce. You had to have a writ of divorce in order to break that contract. And so you were said to be betrothed, but it wasn't finalized. You weren't yet officially married. After that contract was written, sometimes it was months, sometimes it was years, then there would be a ceremony. Now, the ceremony for the Jews wasn't just something that took place in 25 minutes like a lot of our ceremonies do, but it actually took place over the period of several days. And finally, after several days of meals and celebrations and parties, then the fourth step, they were officially married when the groom took the bride home for his own. They would consummate the marriage. And so at this time in the story, Mary had been chosen for Joseph, and they had signed the legal contract, 
but they were only at step two. They hadn't yet performed the ceremony, and of course, Mary hadn't yet gone home to live with Joseph. So verse 18 reminds us that Joseph was a man of integrity. Joseph didn't say, like so many say today, well, we're going to get married anyway. We might as well go ahead. That wasn't Joseph's mentality. Joseph believed that the Bible teaches a chastity before marriage, that marriage is reserved for the, or that sex is reserved for the marriage bed. And so Joseph, we see, is a man who was moral. Number two, we see that Joseph was a religious man. Joseph was a religious man. Verse 19, it says that Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. He was faithful to the law. Some translations say that Joseph was a righteous man. Both translations are good. The idea is that Joseph lived under a standard or authority, not his own. He submitted himself to somebody else's authority. Now, when we think about where our society derives its authority, really we have three choices. There really has only ever been three choices in society. The first choice is what I like to call pre-modernism, pre-modernism. And typically, people in the world prior to the 1700s, prior to the Enlightenment, typically ascribed to this pre-modern way of thinking. This way of thinking said this, truth or the standard of truth is up there. It comes down to us from some divine being. It wasn't always Jesus. It wasn't always the God that we know. Uh, But even in the cultic religions of the world, there was this sense that truth was above us and that we were to submit to divine truth. But along about the 1600s, 1700s, depending on how you want to slice and dice history, there's what we call the Enlightenment. In the Enlightenment, it was thought that truth was no longer up here, or it never really was up here, but that really truth is out here. We experiment and we find out what is truly reality. If it can be performed in a test tube, then we can believe it for ourselves. But if we can't touch it and we can't taste it, then it really isn't, it really doesn't exist. So truth is said to be out here. That's the modernistic way of thinking. And that really ruled the day until about the 1940s. Many sociologists believe that Hitler, uh, that modernism essentially uh, took a death blow with Hitler because Hitler was the quintessential modernist. Hitler thought that everything was a science experiment, and we saw where that ended up. And so after the 1940s, there's this new wave of thinking that we call postmodernism, and that says truth is in here. Truth isn't up there. Surely there's no God, postmodernism says. Surely truth isn't out here because people like Hitler could do all these experiments, and he was just a madman. Truth must be in here. And we see that in our movies. We see that in our children's songs. Just believe in your truth. That sounds beautiful. The problem is it's horrible. It's horrible. If there's no standard for truth, if we get to make up our standards for truth, who's to say society won't be completely off the rails 100 years from now if it gets to make up its own truth? So Joseph was a man who believed that truth was up here. He lived, he submitted himself to an authority, not his own. Thankfully, he submitted himself to the Word of God. Now, let's be a people who love science. Let's be a people who love the scientific method. 
But let us also be a people who derive our authority from God's Word, and we submit to it, and we don't try to make the Bible fit into our views or into our box. I love what's happening all around Bible Center right now. I'm seeing pictures of groups of people meeting together for coffee and Bibles and books strewn across kitchen tables and, and dozens of our people in discipleship studies and people wanting to go deeper in God's Word. And what I love about that is we're saying what Joseph was saying. God's Word is our authority. If it says it, we'll believe it. But we're not going to put grandma's traditions we're not going to put our legalistic traditions. We're not even going to put our policies above the Word of God. In essence, everything submits to it. Joseph was a man who was religious in the best sense of the word. Number three, Joseph was a kind-hearted man. He was a kind-hearted man. In verse 19, notice what it says. Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now let's think for just a moment. Men, how would you have felt if you were Joseph? Mary comes and tells you, hey, I just want you to know I'm expecting a child, and you know it's not yours. It's no way it's yours. But she says, don't worry, this child is from the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Like, yeah, sure, he probably, probably wasn't singing. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, right? He probably was hurt. He was angry, perhaps. He may have been bitter. The text doesn't tell us. But think about what you would have felt. No, Joseph assumes, like any of us would assume, that Mary had been unfaithful. And so Joseph begins the process of breaking up this betrothal, this divorce process in the Jewish mind. It's important for us to know that Joseph could have taken it one step farther. According to the book of Deuteronomy, and the notes, uh, the references are in your notes. You can read it for yourself. Joseph legally could have had Mary stoned to death for immorality. Legally, that's what he could have done. But I love how, what, how God honors him here in verse 19. Essentially, God honors him for being gracious. God honors him for being a man of compassion. Now, thankfully, Joseph wasn't one of these hyper-fundamentalists. If Joseph would have been one of these hyper-fundamentalists, he would have said, look, the Old Testament says this. This is exactly what it says. She needs to be stoned. And if we're not careful, I'm afraid sometimes in our culture, in our religious, I don't know, southern West Virginia culture, if we're not careful, we'll somehow honor those who want to make everybody hold to the letter of every jot and tittle of the law. But I am so thankful for grace. Aren't you thankful for grace? May God help us not to be the kind of people who hold everybody under our thumb, but may God help us be the kind of people who celebrate the grace of God. And yes, we pursue holiness. And yes, we encourage holiness. But I sure hope, I sure hope that I can show others the same grace that God has shown me. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus walked up on the woman taken in adultery, and they wanted to catch him. And they're like, look, look, Jesus, the law says this woman needs to be stoned. And we don't know what Jesus wrote, but it says that Jesus wrote in the sand. And sometimes I like to picture maybe, maybe Jesus is writing the names of all the lovers of the men 
who were gathered around to throw stones at her. Who knows what he was writing? And Jesus said, Let him that is without sin cast the first stone. I am always nervous when I'm around someone who is ready to cast stones. It makes me nervous. Yes, may God help us be a pure people, but may God help us be a gracious people. And let's cut some people some slack, as Pastor Lee said so well last Sunday. Joseph was a kind-hearted man. Number four, Joseph was a contemplative man. Verse 20, he was a contemplative man. It says in verse 20, but after he considered this, we'll stop there. Joseph was a contemplative man. We get the idea that Joseph was meditating on what God had said. These truths were so big and so deep and and, and so new to Joseph, he needed to get alone and meditate. The scriptures don't tell us where he meditated, but it insinuates that he got alone and meditated. So I found a picture this week of one of the mountains outside of Nazareth. It's possible, we don't know, but it's possible this could have been the place. Or it was a place like this, perhaps, that Joseph went for a walk in the woods and just meditated on what the Lord had shown him. We can assume he was meditating on what God would have him do next. As Matthew Henry says, the Lord gives guidance to the thoughtful, not to the unthinking. We don't have to check our brains at the door. Let us not check logic at the door just because we're Christians. Help us to search the Scriptures daily to see what things are so. Joseph was a contemplative man. Number five. Joseph was an obedient man. Joseph was an obedient man. Verse 20, it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, I love this, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary home and his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph was an obedient man. Now, last Christmas, every Christmas, we try to look at different characters in the Christmas story. And and last year and the year before, we looked at some of the women of the Christmas story, and we saw how Mary was very vocal in her obedience. When Mary found out what God wanted her to do, she wrote this beautiful song, this beautiful poem. Uh, She went and told a lot of her family and her friends. She makes a long trip to go see Elizabeth. Mary was, you could tell she was a, a verbal processor. You may know some verbal processors. You know, the kind of people they've never had a private thought. They might be sitting beside you right now. You know who they are. You, you know who you are. Uh, maybe I am one of those as well. But, 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 but not Joseph. Joseph wasn't a verbal processor. I didn't know this until this week. I, I just learned this. Did you know that Joseph is never recorded in the Bible as having said one word? There's not one word in the entire Bible recorded from Joseph of Nazareth. I didn't know that. 
So we see Joseph was different. It doesn't make his obedience any better than Mary's. But here's something that we can learn. Joseph was known by what he did, not by what he said. Joseph was known by what he did, not by what he said. What about you? Are you known by what you do more than what you say? Or do people know that, well, he or she's going to say this, but they're really going to do this? Are you known by what you do or by what you say but don't do? Perhaps I'm preaching this morning to someone and God's been laying upon your heart. You know you need to do something. Maybe it's forgive somebody. There's somebody with whom you've been at odds and, and you know you need to try again. You just need to try again. And the Lord's been putting them on your heart and you see them at the restaurant and you go to Walmart and they always tend to be coming down your aisle and you pretend like you don't see them, but you, know, you can only bury your head in the cereal for so long. Whoever that person is, if God's been laying upon your heart to try again, try again. Just be obedient to what the Lord tells you to do. They may not want to respond, but you can try with grace and love. Hey, what about sacrifice? Is there something or somebody for whom the Lord's been urging you to sacrifice, to give up something that you would have so that they can have something they don't have? And you know the Lord's been pricking your heart to do this, but you know it's going to hurt and you know that you're not going to have some resources if you do what the Lord's laying it upon your heart to do, and you're like, oh, I just don't know if I can be obedient. Look to Joseph. Talk about a hard assignment. He was sacrificing his reputation. For the rest of his life, people would say he married an adulterous woman. And you see that in the Gospels. They called Jesus the illegitimate child as Jesus grew up in his neighborhood. He sacrificed his reputation. Perhaps he sacrificed his business. He may have sacrificed income, but he obeyed what the Lord wanted him to do. What about witnessing? Is there somebody the Lord's been putting on your heart to witness to? You ever get that feeling when you get nervous? Your hands get sweaty, mine do. And you're like, ah, you're with them alone again. And you know God at least wants you to invite him to church right? At least to church, but to share the gospel or to share what's happened in your life and you get the butterflies, just obey and watch what God does in your life. Joseph was an obedient man. I love this. Number six, Joseph was a small town man. He was a small town man. In Matthew 2.23, he says, he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Luke 2.39 says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Here's a map, a picture of Nazareth, so you can see where it is in Israel. Uh, it's far north of Jerusalem between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It's in what we call the southern hills of Galilee. Nazareth is a small town. Let me help, you, help us understand about how big it is. If you've ever been to the small town of Burnsville, right, the metropolis of Burnsville, that's about how big, about the population of 500 people. Uh, it was about as big as Matewan in the southern part of our state. It was about the size of the town, the current population of Clay, West Virginia. This is how big Nazareth was. He would have, Joseph would have known the local baker. He would have known all of his neighbors. He would have known which neighbors complained. 
and which neighbors were fun to be with. He would have known who he could trust and who he couldn't trust. He would have known all the streets and all the mountain trails. Joseph was a small-town man. But number seven, Joseph was a hard-working man. He was a hard-working man. In Matthew 13, 55, he says, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this his mother's, his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Joseph was a hard-working man. Now, we don't know if Joseph was impoverished. Some believe that he was impoverished because he, his sacrifice when Jesus was born was just a turtle dove, and that was typically the, the sacrifice of a poor person, so maybe he was on the front end of his career. Uh, we know for sure he wasn't wealthy. He wasn't of nobility, but wherever he was, he was a hardworking man because his reputation throughout the Gospels was the carpenter. He was just called the carpenter, and Jesus was known as the carpenter's son. Now, the word carpenter in the original language can be translated one of two ways. It could be a woodworker, or it could be a mason. It could be a woodworker, or it could be a mason. We get this picture a lot of Jesus being a woodworker, and no doubt he would have framed windows and, and the structures of houses. But most likely, Joseph and Jesus also work with stone. Interestingly, I didn't know this till, till several years ago. Several, three miles, like three and a half miles from Nazareth was the town of Sephoris, S-E-P-P-H-O-R-I-S. Sephoris was right near a big rock quarry. And Sephoris was a Hellenized city. The Romans built mostly of stone. And so one tradition says that Jesus and Joseph not only worked with wood, but they also helped build the city of Sephoris that was being built during Jesus' lifetime. Either way, Joseph was a hard-working man. Have you ever met somebody who was hard-working, particularly maybe your dad or your grandpa? Notice how their hands are rough and big. My dad was a mechanic growing up, and it felt like his hands were always like 10 times the size of mine. At one point, they probably were. His fingers were big, and they were always cut and dry. And as he's working under the hood of cars, maybe you know somebody, a, a coal miner or, or someone who works with uh, their hands outside. This is Joseph. So when you think of Joseph, think of that person. Joseph was a hard-working man. Number eight, Joseph was a family man. Joseph was a family man. We see it in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. He says, isn't this the carpenter? There it is again. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And it says, and they took offense at him. And we'll leave this on the screen for just a minute. This is helpful for us to, to understand that Jesus had stepbrothers. Jesus had actually half-brothers. Uh, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph enjoyed normal marital relations. And if you're ever asked, how many brothers and sisters did Jesus have? You can say five, at least five. He grew up in at least a family of six. This is how we know that. Because you've got Jesus, and then you've got his half-brother, James. James is the one who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. It's one of my favorite books. And when you read James, you're like, man, this sounds a lot like Jesus. Why does this sound a lot like Jesus? Because at one time, they probably shared a bunk bed together, right? I mean, like, James knew Jesus, like, 
personally in that way. And then there's Joseph. For some reason, they named this child after uh, his father, Joseph. So there's Jesus, James, and Joseph. There's three. Then there's Judas. You say, Judas, is that the bad Judas? No, that's not the bad Judas. Later in the Bible, Judas preferred to go by Jude, J-U-D-E, which is one of the last books in the New Testament. Why do you think Judas didn't want to go by Judas anymore? Yeah, he's like, don't call me that. Call me Jude, which is why we now have the Bible named Jude. And then Simon, but it also says, aren't his sisters here with us? So we don't know how many sisters, but it's plural. So that means there had to at least be two. So at least there were six children. Now, you say, what about the tradition that says that Mary remained a virgin her entire life? That comes from a mistranslation of the Latin Vulgate. When Jerome, who I love dearly, but when he translated the, the Bible into Latin, he, for some reason, he translated this word cousins. It's not cousins. It's brothers and sisters. So Jesus had brothers and sisters. Joseph was a family man. Joseph believed in adoption. Several weeks ago, we saw how that God's heartbeat beats for adoption. And if you're still riding that wave like some of us are over the last few weeks, I want to recommend a good book to you. I just found it this week. It's only 60-some pages long, and it explores how Joseph was the model adoptive parent. Because Jesus wasn't his biological son, but yet he adopted Jesus and became his father I recommend that book to you. Again, it's an easy read. Joseph was a family man. But lastly, in number nine, Joseph was a sinful man. Joseph was a sinful man. Matthew one twenty one says this, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is one of the big themes of the Bible. It's the theme of the book of Matthew. It's a story of, of rescue about how God came to save us from our sins. God created. This is the gospel. You've heard the word gospel. God created all things, but sin broke all things. Everything in life is affected by sin right down to our, our DNA. It's affected by sin. You say, why do bad things happen in the world? Well, this is the answer. 99% of it could be summed up with this. The world is just broken by sin. Does that mean that just because something bad happens to you, your washing machine breaks down, that's, it's the result of your sin? No. Does that mean if your car breaks down, it's the result of your sin? No. It's probably because you have a Chevy and not a Ford. But you know, the point is, everything in life is broken. Jesus God says He created all things, sin broke all things, but Jesus came to save all things. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and He rose again the third day to fulfill what was promised in Matthew 1.21. He will save His people from their sins. Interesting thing about Joseph, there's nowhere in the Bible where any of his specific sin is ever recorded. There's only a handful of people like that in all the Bible. you got David, you see his good stuff, and you see his bad stuff. Abraham, you see his good stuff, but not with Joseph. No specific sin is recorded about Joseph. You say, well, Matt, how do you know he was a sinner? How do you know he was a sinner? The answer is simple, because he died. The answer is simple, because he died. The wages of sin is death. 
We don't know when Joseph died. The last time we see him was at Jesus' 13th or so birthday. And after Jesus was 13, you don't see Joseph ever show up again in the New Testament record. We know he was already dead by the time Jesus died on the cross because if you'll remember, as Jesus was dying, he looked at John and he said, take care of my mother, essentially, take care of the widow. So Joseph died somewhere in that time period. Why did Joseph die? It's the same reason all of us die, because the wages of sin is death. You say, but man, I thought Joseph was a good person. That was the whole premise of your message. Joseph is a good person. No, here's the premise of my message. Even good people need God's grace. Even good people need God's grace. Think about all of these characteristics of Joseph before we pray. Think about it and now measure it up to your own life. Let's think for a minute. Don't think about the person sitting next to you. They've got their own stuff. Just think about you. How do you measure up to moral? Joseph was a moral man. Have you been moral every moment of your life? Don't answer out loud, please. <laughs> but have you been more? What about religious? Have every moment of your life, have you thought about putting God first and his word first? What about kind-hearted? Have you been kind-hearted every moment of your life? I don't want to embarrass her, and I didn't tell her I was going to tell the story, but last night, Sarah and I were talking about something, and she was burdened for somebody and had a, a real burden on her heart, and I was trying to, you know, like pull the pastor ninja judo on her and like, you know, well, this verse says this, and this verse says that, and I just really wanted to go to bed, and so finally, I'm like, look, look, you just got to get over it, and they're going to be okay. Just give them to Jesus. I'm going to bed, right? And I went to bed by myself, uh, and, and, uh, this morning I get up to prepare for this message and think through all the things I've studied this week, and I'm like, kind-hearted, kind-hearted. Probably need to talk to Sarah before I come to church today. So I did, so I did, repented. Have you been kind-hearted every minute of your life? What about contemplative? What about obedient? What about hardworking? What about a family person? The truth is none of us match up to this. None of us. That's why James, Jesus' half-brother, wrote this, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So what do I want you to do today? No matter who you are, man or woman, student, child, adult, grandpa, grandma, I want you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so you can be saved. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so you can be saved. You say, Matt, why do I need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Because even good people need God's grace. Will you pray with me? With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd love to give you the opportunity to right there in your seat accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. In our first service this morning, five adults raised their hand, two women and three men, and said, I have prayed to receive Christ. We're going to get to follow up with four of them this week and trust we can get in touch with the fifth. I will not embarrass you. You have my commitment. You have my word. But right there in the privacy of this moment between me, you, and the Lord, I want to let, give you the encouragement and the opportunity to commit your life to Christ. There's no set prayer in the Bible. One person in the Bible said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Bible says he was saved. One person on the cross said, Lord, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
But whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to use your own words, but I will give you a, a prayer. And as I pray, I would ask you right where you sit to put your faith in Christ and pray these words or similar words. All it is is an expression of your faith, not in your goodness, but in Jesus' goodness. Will you whisper these prayer, this prayer to the Lord with me right where you sit? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not good enough to save myself. But I believe Jesus loves me just as I am. I believe he died on the cross for me and rose again the third day. Lord, come into my life. Make me a Christian. Begin to change me from the inside out. I want Jesus' way, not my way. With heads bowed and eyes closed, between you, me, and the Lord, you'd say, Pastor Matt, I prayed that prayer, I meant it, and I'm glad that I did. Right here in my seat, and this first Sunday of December, I've committed my life to Christ. Will you raise your hand so I can remember you in prayer at the end? Pastor Matt, pray for me. Right where I sit, I prayed it, I meant it. I'm glad that I did. Will you slip up your hand right where you are? Father, I thank you for this one at the back. Father, I thank you for this dear lady who's committing her life to Christ. God, I believe that you would have sent your son just for her. And you love her and you know her story. And God, I'm asking that you would help her to connect to your word and connect to your church and that we might rally around her and encourage her in the faith as she grows as a Christian. Father, I pray she would confess Jesus and let somebody know, let us know this week so we could come around her and help her and encourage her in this journey. God, I pray for every man, woman, and child in this room that we would not try to get our goodness from ourselves, but we would see it only comes from Christ. Because of that gift, Lord, help us truly to try to live to be good people, to accept your grace when we fail, to quickly repent. And Lord, like Joseph, even if we are never famous, even if we're at the, never at the head of the story, I pray that we will be a shining example of your grace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.